Scripture reading today is from Mark 9.50. Mark 9.50. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. As we get started this morning, I want to uh, uh, remind our men that this upcoming Saturday is Men's Weekend. We've got a, a special program planned, and it's going to just take place on Saturday morning, uh, beginning at 9 a.m., I believe, and concluding with lunch around noon. Uh, we've got a guest speaker coming from the Spanish Fort Church of Christ in Spanish Fort, Alabama, down on the Gulf Coast. His name is Rick Whittle. He's a great speaker that I've known for many years during my time of working down in Pensacola. And we encourage all of our men to come be a part of this particular uh, study called Uncomfortable. It'll take place this Saturday beginning at 9 a.m. I also want to let you know that on next Sunday, we also have a special event planned, which just got lost from my PowerPoint somehow. We have what we're calling... Focus Sunday. Now, we intended to initiate Focus Sunday last year, but due to the pandemic, we're unable to do it. Focus Sunday is going to be an annual event, not particularly with this theme or speaker, but an annual Sunday where, we'll get, where we will dedicate a specific focus to a specific topic for the entire day. This year, the title is Focus on Your Mind, and we've got uh, Mark Butts coming into town to speak on three issues related to, um, related to the, the mind and to mental health and that sort of thing. He'll address the topics of uh, depression and anxiety and addiction. And, and that will be Sunday morning Bible class, Sunday morning worship, and Sunday evening worship next week. So all adult classes will meet in here uh, for the Bible class hour next Sunday morning. And we will not have a roundtable discussion next Sunday evening all catering to this special Sunday focus next week. So please join us next Sunday as well for this particular study, and I believe it will be beneficial for all of us who attend. Um, so we've got a pretty big weekend next weekend, a, a special event on Saturday, special focus on Sunday, and we encourage you to be a part of it with us. With that being said, we're going to return today to a sermon series that we've been engaged in for some time that we've taken a couple weeks off from. Hopefully you remember that we are in this series called Anothering. And the whole idea behind this series is to investigate the one another commands that we find in Scripture. Commands like love one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another. Those are the one another commands that we've already examined thus far. And this morning, if you noticed in Mark chapter 9 and verse 50, Jesus makes another one another statement. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 50, at the very end of the sentence, he says, be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. Now we're all Christians here. Well, for the most part. The majority of us in here are Christians. And we have no conflicts, right? We're Christians, so therefore we're always at peace with one another, right? 
Isn't that the assumption that we should operate from? You journey through Scripture, and one thing you will notice consistently is that God's people have conflicts. Just go to Genesis chapter 1. Start with Abraham. Here's the individual who's been chosen by God to be his special people. And follow Abraham's family, and what you will discover is one conflict after another. Just look at the conflict between Sarah, Sarah and Hagar once Hagar has Ishmael. Or journey a little bit further down into the story and look at the conflict that arises between Jacob and Esau after Jacob swindles Esau out of his birthright and then flat out steals his blessing. And then look at the conflict that ensues with Jacob's children as he pours out favoritism on Joseph and the rest of Joseph's brothers so hate him that they capture him and engage in human trafficking with him. That's the first chosen family of God's people and it's one conflict after another. And you know what? The unfortunate thing is that even in the church, conflict still ensues. Just look at Mark chapter 9 for one second. Here you have Jesus saying, be at peace with one another. But if you look at the context of other things he's having to address in that very chapter, you'll see that even while Jesus was with his disciples, there was conflict. If you back up to verses 33 through 37, you'll see that Jesus has to address the fact that the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest one of them. They're trying to show one another up. They're trying to claim to be the best disciple. There's conflict among the disciples that Jesus has to confront. In verses 38 through 41 of Mark chapter 9, you'll see that Jesus had to correct his disciples for criticizing a kingdom worker who was not following their specific group. Someone was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but wasn't with them, so therefore he must be wrong. And Jesus had to correct their view of that situation. That was an episode of conflict as well. And Jesus even had to utter words in Mark chapter 9, in verse 42, he had to provide a warning about negatively impacting the faith of a young believer. Because we as followers are really good at creating conflict. We're better at creating conflict than we are at making peace. But yet, what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 9 and verse 50 is that as his followers, we are to be at peace with one another. He wanted his disciples in that day and his disciples today to understand that the life of a disciple is not meant to create conflict. It's meant to pursue peace. And so what we need to do today is take a long, hard look at what the Bible has to say 
about being at peace with one another. And so I want to share with you what the Bible says peacemaking is and what peacemaking is not. And the first thing I want you to understand is that the Bible makes it very clear peacemaking is not always achievable. So there's one passage we're going to look at quite a bit today. It's Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. It's not a long passage, but it makes three very important assertions within it. So in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, you'll come across this terminology. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now I want you for just a moment to notice those first two words. If possible. What does that mean? It means that peacemaking is a possibility, not a guarantee. That's why we have to emphasize the pursuit of peace rather than the result of peace. See, peacemaking can only be achieved when both parties accept the terms of peace. So the phrase, if possible here, means that there are factors that can prevent peace from being achieved. And you know, it's very fascinating to me because you can go to some of Jesus' own teachings and some of Paul's other writings and see that they are acknowledging or alluding to the fact that peacemaking is not always obtainable. So in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives instructions to his disciples right before he sends them out on an evangelistic campaign. It's Matthew chapter 10, verses 11 through 15, where Jesus says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now my fellow ministers here did a great job talking about shaking the dust off your feet last Sunday night. If you haven't listened to that lesson from the Roundtable series, be sure to check that out. But what I find interesting here when Jesus gives these instructions to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 is that he is ultimately acknowledging the possibility that peacemaking will not be a possibility. You see, these disciples were sent out on a peacemaking campaign. They're going out into the surrounding towns and villages to proclaim the good news about the kingdom being near. And they're going to encounter people who don't want to hear that message. Their message is a message of reconciliation. Their message is a message that's supposed to bring peace between man and God. But some people don't want to hear about it. Some people don't care about that message. And Jesus says, in those moments where you are rejected, there's a point at which you can shake the dust off your feet. There's a point at which, in the rejection, you don't have to keep pursuing this. Now that one might be a little bit harder for you to wrap your mind around. But notice this. Notice Paul's instructions to married couples in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 10 and 11 in particular. 
Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives about reconciling with each other. Reconciliation is a peacemaking process. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, if you skip down to verse 15, you'll see Paul add this statement as well. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Here's what I want you to notice. Paul commands Christian spouses to seek to reconcile every marital dilemma, every marital dispute, every marital disagreement. But Paul acknowledges in verse 15 that when the marriage involves a non-believer, reconciliation may not be possible despite the believing spouse's best efforts. He's not saying that a believing spouse should give up. He's not saying that a believing spouse should stop seeking peace and reconciliation. He's saying that when you're dealing with somebody who doesn't accept the standards of God, they may not allow peace to happen. They may not contribute to the reconciliation process. I'm not wanting you to look at this verse and go, hey, there's my escape route. There's how I can get out of my marriage, because that's not what the verse is telling you. What the verse is saying is that there are times where peacemaking is beyond your control. But as a Christian, peacemaking is always your pursuit. So the point of bringing up these two passages is to show that the Bible is honest about peacemaking. Sometimes, despite your best efforts, making peace is not possible because the other party refuses to participate. I acknowledged this three weeks ago when we talked about forgiving one another. Forgiveness, I said, was a one-way street that you get to decide whether or not you will take. But reconciliation, peacemaking, is a two-way street that requires the participation of both parties and you don't get to choose what the other person is going to do. So the Bible is honest. Sometimes peacemaking is not possible. But returning to this passage in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, you'll notice it says, if possible. It's up to you and I as Christians, as, as disciples, as followers of God, to always be looking for that possibility. And the fact that peacemaking is not always possible, that does not give you and I as Christians the freedom to avoid the peacemaking process. That's because the Bible indicates that when it comes to disciples, peacemaking is intentional. In other words, Peace doesn't happen by chance. Peace happens by choice. Peace is not accidental. It is intentional. Just look at this passage again. If possible, so far as it depends on you. Paul's writing to Christians, and he's saying, as far as it depends on you, not the possibility of what somebody else might do, 
But as far as it depends on you, as a believer, as a Christian, as a disciple, as far as it depends on you, peacemaking's the responsibility. And I want you to consider for a moment what that phrase, so far as it depends on you, implies. So far as it depends on you, means that you must be willing to make the first step. You must be willing to make the first move in the peacemaking process. It doesn't matter who initiated the conflict. It doesn't matter who's most at fault in the disagreement. It doesn't matter who's to blame. Paul is saying that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have the responsibility to initiate peace. In fact, Jesus felt so strongly about peacemaking that in the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is because disciples are always in pursuit of peace. Jesus is saying that your pursuit of peace needs to take precedence over your worship of him. If there's a conflict, if there's an issue, if there's a problem, go deal with that because you can't love God if you don't love your brother. Peacemaking contributes to that love of brother that contributes to that love of God. And so it's our responsibility to always be in pursuit of peace. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, Paul instructed Timothy to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, and guess what? Peace. The point is that peace isn't something disciples simply wait for or hope for. It's something that disciples actively pursue. Whether that's peace between you and someone you disagree with at work, or peace between you and someone you don't get along with at church, or peace between you and your spouse, or peace between you and your in-laws, or peace between you and your estranged child, or peace between you and somebody of a different race that you dislike. Peacemaking paints a broad picture. And what this phrase, so far as it depends on you, implies is that you and I, as Christians, have the responsibility to pursue it, to even initiate it. But you know what else? So far as it depends on you also means that you desire peace. So far as means that peacemaking is your ultimate objective. It means that all of your actions are intentionally designed to promote reconciliation. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager. Eager to make peace. That's Paul's expectation of Christians. 
that they're going to be eager to make peace. That means that, that peace is your aim. That means that's your ambition, that making peace is your goal. That's why Paul gave these instructions in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. He said, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for a restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Aim for restoration. That's the terminology of making peace your ultimate goal with others. So the phrase, so far as it depends on you, means that peace, reconciliation, restoration, those are always your objective. Your desire is for peace to be achieved, not for conflict to ensue. And you know what else, when we look at that phrase, so far as it depends on you, I believe it also means that you will be willing to take extraordinary measures to make peace. So we've already alluded to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. It says, make every effort to live in peace with all men. Make every effort. And that's not the only place in Scripture where peace is linked with the terminology of making every effort. Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verses 17 through 19, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Making every effort implies that you're willing to do anything within the realm of God's will to create peace. Making every effort means that you're willing to go the extra mile. You're willing to turn the other cheek. You're willing to humble yourself all in an effort to make peace. That terminology of make every effort, it reminds us that peace is the result of intentional efforts. And as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, we must realize that it is our responsibility to live peaceably with all men so far as it depends on us. So as believers, we make every effort to make peace. Because peacemaking is intentional. And you also need to realize that peacemaking is not optional. Jesus commanded in Mark chapter 9 and verse 50 for us to be at peace with one another. And here in this passage we've been focusing on Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He's not stating this as a suggestion or an option or a good idea. He's stating it as an expectation, as a command, as an instruction. So it, when we look at, at this statement in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, 
we can't, we can't escape the fact that it's our objective, it's our responsibility, it's our job description to pursue peace. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Because if you really journey through Scripture and look at the passages that address peace, you'll come across several that are calling on you and I as Christians to be the peace core of God. So in Romans chapter 14 and verse 19, you'll come across this terminology. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11, which we've already noted, finally, brothers, aim for restoration. Live in peace. And we've mentioned 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 already. Flee youthful passions and pursue, among other things, peace. And of course, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, which we've already noted. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You can come across several passages that present the expectation of peacemaking. And here's what else. You can come across the instructions of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 through 24, as well as Matthew chapter 18 and verse 5, where it becomes evident that Jesus expects you, whether you're the one who has caused an offense or been the offended, he expects you in either scenario to initiate peace, to initiate reconciliation. In Matthew chapter 5, his instructions are about if you're at the altar and realize your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled. Go and make peace. That's when you're the offender. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. That's when you're the offended. Did you notice in Matthew chapter 5, if you're the one who caused the offense, you're supposed to initiate reconciliation. In Matthew chapter 18, if you're the one who's the uh, recipient of the offense, you're supposed to initiate reconciliation. That means no matter what, you can't get around it. It's your job to seek peace. If you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, if you're wearing his name, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, guess what? You are a peacemaker. That's your job. And you know, you journey through Scripture and you come to Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians, those marital instructions we've already alluded to. And Paul instructs believing spouses to pursue reconciliation with those unbelieving spouses. He didn't leave an option open for a Christian spouse to just say, okay, I give up, I'm done. He stated it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Listen to those words again. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. He's telling Christian spouses that, hey, it's, it's your job to reconcile these things. It's your job to fix these issues. It's your job as a believing spouse to make things right. And then you can go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 
12 through 13, where Paul addresses the relationship between shepherds and sheep and emphasizes the pursuit of peace by all Christians. He said, we ask you, brothers, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. He's giving instructions about the relationship between the sheep of the congregation and the shepherds of the congregation. And he concludes those instructions by saying, be at peace among yourselves. He's saying that you're a member of the body. He's saying you're part of the sheepfold. That means you inherently have the responsibility to be at peace among yourselves. You see, if you become a Christian, you cannot avoid the responsibility of peacemaking. It's inherited. The point of all the passages that I've referenced here is that peacemaking must always be our objective. Christians are God's designated peace corps on this earth, as one preacher said. Peacemaking is not an option for us. It is an occupation. I mean, think about it. When Jesus gave the Beatitudes, he did not say, blessed are the peace lovers, but blessed are the peace makers. The blessing is for those who actively engage in repairing broken relationships. And that's what we're expected to do. Do you know why? Because that's what he did for us. The Prince of Peace came to this earth was nailed to a cross in order to make peace between us, the offenders, and God, the offended. But I think there's one more thing I need to address before we bring this lesson to a close. We've talked about the fact that peacemaking is not always achievable. We've talked about the fact that peacemaking is intentional. And that peacemaking is not optional, but there is one more thing you really need to know, and that is that peacemaking is conditional. If you think peacemaking is unconditional, then you may be confusing peace with appeasement. Appeasement is the we'll just have to agree to disagree mentality, and sometimes that's okay. Appeasement is the let bygones be bygones mentality. In other words, appeasement is is a method for bringing an end to fighting by allowing everyone to get their way. And appeasement may temporarily result in a cessation of fighting, but it's, it's not the same as peace. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemaker, not, the, not blessed are the appeasers. You have to remember that Jesus himself often was the source of peace disturbance because he refused to practice appeasement. He'd say in Matthew chapter 10, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will, will be those of his own household. In other words, the Prince of Peace didn't get along with everybody. 
He didn't make everybody happy. He didn't appease everybody, and that's because he wasn't advocating for cheap peace. See, one of the things we have to realize about peacemaking is that we must, as one preacher said, be very prayerful and careful about where and when to commit to peace. That's because in the Bible, peace is not just the absence of conflict. In the Bible, peace is the presence of righteousness. You know, in Hebrew thought, the word peace, which is known to you probably as shalom, peace refers to wholeness or completeness. So biblically speaking, peace is more than the absence of conflict. It includes the presence of righteousness. And, and as a result, there can be no real peace as long as sin is condoned. So I want you to notice what's said in James chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. James says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. James goes on to identify other qualities of the wisdom that's from above, but, but what, he, what he identified first, what he identified first about the wisdom that's from above is that it's pure. James prioritized purity over peace when it comes to wisdom. And he goes on to say that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, James indicates that the ultimate result of peacemaking is not the cessation of conflict, but the production of righteousness. The same can be said for Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, which we've looked at a number of times tonight. Here we're instructed to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or as another translation says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The assignment in this passage is to pursue peace and holiness. To make every effort to be at peace and every effort to be holy. You don't sacrifice holiness to make peace. And the reason you don't make that sacrifice is because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See, here's the point. There is a limit to peacemaking. You never pursue peace at the expense of righteousness. In fact, the whole objective of peacemaking is to produce righteousness. And so never confuse appeasement with peacemaking. A Christian must never, must never make peace at the expense of purity. And that means peace is never unconditional because its primary pr purpose is to produce a harvest of righteousness. So as we strive to be peacemakers, let's be sure, let's be certain that we never settle for appeasement. Let's be certain that we're always striving to produce the righteousness of God even in our attempts to make peace. In closing, I want to point out that Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I find that very interesting because the reward for peacemaking 
being identified as God's son. That's interesting because elsewhere in the Bible we're told that you are all sons of God through faith in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. And Romans chapter 8 and verse 14 says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So, so why did Jesus in the Beatitudes associate peacemaking with sonship when elsewhere, peace, when elsewhere sonship is associated with faith and with the Holy Spirit? Well, think about this. In Hebrew thought, son of not only indicates lineage, it, it indicates likeness. So there's this interesting... Uh, a uh, nickname for the apostles, James and John. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 17, they are called Sons of Thunder. It's a really cool nickname. If you ever want to give it to me, I'm okay with that. <laughs> now, but they were given that nickname apparently because they were a little bit hot-headed. I don't want that meaning, though. I want something more along the lines of Thor. Then you got a guy named Joseph over in Acts chapter 4. His nickname was Barnabas, and that meant son of encouragement. He got the nickname because he was such an expert encourager. See, when you use that identity of sonship, oftentimes it's referring to being like someone or something. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. He's ultimately saying that if, if you make peacemaking the objective, you're going to be like your Father in heaven. And isn't that what we all want to do? To be as like God as we possibly can? If we want to be like God, then one of the things we're going to have to do at peace with one another. And so this morning, as we continue our study of these one another commands, we have to realize that we have a responsibility to be at peace with one another. And I know that won't be easy, but it is expected. This morning, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then I want you to consider for a moment whether or not you are truly functioning as a peacemaker. Have, have you done your job at making peace with others? Have you made every effort? Are you recognizable as God's child because of the way you practice peace? And if you're not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then consider whether or not you are really at that's not a question about your current emotional status. That's not a question about your current relational conflict status. It's a question about your current spiritual status. There's only one way to have peace, and that's by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God by repenting of your sins and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. It's Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 that says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can only find that peace when we commit to His plan for salvation. This morning, maybe you need peace. Maybe you need that peace that passes all understanding. 
and we're gathered here to offer that. And we're gathered here to help achieve that. And we're gathered here to challenge each other to fulfill that in one another's lives. If you have any need to respond to the invitation this morning, then we extend it at this time, inviting you to come to the front.